I want, to, I want us to look at two passages of Scripture. <coughs> so if you will, open your Bibles to Psalm 22 and put uh, a piece of paper or something there in that. And then, thank you, and then turn to Genesis chapter 22. So uh, we're going to look at Genesis 22, first of all, and then Psalm 22. So if you want to just put uh, your program in, insert it there in, in Psalm 22, then you'll be able to um, flip to that quite quickly. Last night we looked at what the gospel is. We asked the question and tried to answer the question, what did Jesus do? in his life and his death, and then what does that mean to you? That is, when we have trusted Christ, what is the result? And we saw that that results in our right standing with God, what Paul refers to as justification. And this morning we have begun to look at what it means to live out the gospel in our lives, and we look, first of all, at what I call the fruit of character. In this last session, we want to consider the expansion of the gospel. So with that, Genesis 22, verse 18. Before we read the verse, let me just give you the context of this. This chapter recounts God's testing of Abraham when he told Abraham to go to a certain mountain and, and offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice there upon the altar. And you're well familiar with that story, how that uh, Abraham was willing to obey God, trusting God that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead, but as it turned out that uh, as Abraham was about to plunge the knife into his son, God called out to him and told him to stop, and uh, then Abraham turned and God had provided the ram which was caught in the bushes there, and Abraham offered the ram as a sacrifice instead. And in that context, God then says to Abraham in... uh, in beginning with verse uh, verse 15, but I want to go to verse 18, and we catch this right in the middle of what God is saying to Abraham. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, God first gave this promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where he told Abraham to go out to a land which he would after receive as an inheritance, and God would bless him, and God would make him a blessing, and in, in him uh, the, all the nations would be blessed. The reason that I've chosen to go to uh, Genesis uh, 22.18 is because this is the first occasion when God uh, begins to tell Abraham how this is going to happen. In your seed shall all the nations be blessed. Paul, in Galatians chapter 3, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, identifies the seed as the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can understand this, that God said to Abraham, Abraham, in your descendant, who will be my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, all the nations will be blessed. This is a promise that God gave to Abraham some 6,000 years ago. Now with that, turn to Psalm 22. And you again would recognize that this is a messianic psalm. 
You know the first verse in which Jesus quoted as he hung on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are the words that Jesus said toward the end of that awful three hours when he had endured the wrath of God in our place. Toward the end of the passage, and I uh, have often observed that Psalm 22 begins with Christ on the cross and ends with Christ on the throne. And in verses 27 and 28, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Now, Genesis 22:18 is a promise that God gave to Abraham. This passage in Psalm 22 is a prophecy of what will happen that God will indeed bring to pass. And it's in the light of these two passages of Scripture that we want to consider this morning the subject of the expansion of the gospel. In the year 1784, a group of ministers in the Midlands of England sent out an urgent prayer request to their various churches, the churches that were represented by this group of ministers, not only the churches that they were pastoring, but other churches. And uh, this prayer request was for revival in their own and other churches in England and for, quote, the spread of the gospel to the most distant parts of the habitable globe. And understand that over 200 years ago, in the year 1784, they probably did not know what they were saying when they said the spread of the gospel to the most distant parts of the habitable globe. If you've seen any kind of maps that were drawn in those days, you realize that how primitive they were in comparison, of course, to the digital produced maps that we have today. But I want to call your attention to the fact that in over 200 years ago, these men sent out a request to their churches to pray not only for revival in their own churches, but for the spread of the gospel. In other words, for the missionary enterprise, you might say. Now, today, to you and me, an urgent prayer request for world missions does not seem all that unusual. If you are like us, our family, we get uh, missionary newsletters and things in our mail all the time with various prayer requests. But the fact is, in 1784, these men who sent out that urgent prayer request for the spread of the gospel to the most distant parts of the habitable globe had never met a missionary. They'd never attended a missionary conference. They'd never read a missionary prayer letter. And so the question arises then, if these pastors had never met a missionary, had never attended a missions conference, had never read a missionary prayer letter, where then did they get their sense of urgency for the spread of the gospel, for the missionary work of the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth? And the answer is that they got this sense of urgency from reading the Bible. They read passages such as Genesis 12:3 and Genesis 22:18, and they saw that God had promised to Abraham that Christ would be a blessing to every nation in the world. Now, when we read the word nation, we think of Iraq and Afghanistan and Canada and Japan and, and Malawi and countries like that, political entities. 
But in the original meaning of the word nations, it has to do not just with political entities as we think of them today, but as people groups, as as, uh, Revelation 5 and Revelation 7 puts it, every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Within the country of India, for example, there are hundreds of what we might call nations. And the promise to Abraham is that through Jesus, every one of these nations. Now, in our political world today, there's something just under 200 political entities, which we call nations. But in terms of God's promise to Abraham, there are hundreds of them, perhaps thousands of them. I think Wycliffe Bible Translators has identified over 2,000 groups of people who do not have any portion of the Bible in their own language. And the promise that God gave to Abraham was that through Jesus, every one of these nations will be blessed. And then he comes to the Psalms written thousands of years later. And through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, David foresees the time when all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. As we sit here this morning, we see that it is God's plan that every nation, every tribe and tongue and people be blessed through the gospel. Now, I cannot quantify what that means. What does it mean for a nation to be blessed by the gospel? I think I can assuredly say that our nation, our United States, has indeed been blessed by the gospel. But I think of the country where our son and daughter-in-law are serving in the Middle East, and I would have to say, I don't think that nation has been blessed. And yet we have this promise from God that through Abraham's seed, that is through Christ, that all the nations will be blessed. Now, yesterday, and particularly last night, we focused on the blessing of the gospel to us. What did Jesus do and what does that mean to us? And we learn that it means that as we trust Christ, that our sins are forgiven, that we stand before God clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ, that we have the assurance that when we leave this life, we will immediately go into the presence of the Lord. And by and by, at the resurrection, we will be united with our resurrection bodies. And so we've sort of been focusing on that. And and well, we need to do it because we as believers need to learn to live by the gospel every day of our lives. And that's that's been my burden this weekend to help us to realize what it means to to live as Christians by the gospel every day of our lives. But the gospel is more than just for us. We're not the terminal point of the gospel. We are simply a way station on the way of the progression of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, my intent this morning is not to present a big missionary challenge. My intent is not to lay the burden upon you that, you know, you ought to go out into the mission field. These kinds of things. This is not my intent. But my intent is to raise and to sharpen and to bring into focus our vision for what God has on his heart and for what God, in fact, not only has on his heart, but plans to do. God is going to bless every nation in the world. He made that promise to Abraham and God cannot lie. 
Now, how, what that will look like, we have no idea. When it will eventually come to pass, we do not know. But we know because God promised it to Abraham that it will happen in his time. Every nation in the world will be blessed. And not only that, but every nation that is a, a, a sizable portion of that nation will acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what David is saying when he says, the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and the families of the nations shall worship before you. God is promising through his promise to Abraham and through his prophecy given through David that there is going to be a significant penetration of the gospel in every nation of the world. And you and I get to have a part in that. The gospel does not end with us, but rather the gospel. I mean, we are simply uh, way stations on the way as the gospel spreads to all the nations. Now, we see here two streams of thought that if you would take the time to go through and just take your computer concordance or your paperback concordance or whatever and trace words like nations and things like that, you will see that there are two streams of thought that go through the Old Testament. The one, the first stream of thought is that all the nations will be blessed. For example, Isaiah 49, 6. Let me just, don't you turn to that, but let me just turn to that very quickly and, and read that to you. Isaiah 49, 6, where God says to his servant, who is, of course, Christ, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so here we see the continuation of, of this promise that God gave to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through Christ, be blessed through the gospel. And then we have the idea, and I'm not going to take the time to look these up, but we have the idea that Christ is going to reign. Christ is going to exercise his lordship over the nations. Now, again, what that will look like, I do not know. But Christ is going to exercise his lordship. Now, these two strains are brought together in what we call the Great Commission, found in Matthew 28, verses 18, 19, and 20, where Jesus says to his disciples before he ascends into heaven, All authority has been given unto me and in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now, in the Greek, it literally says, Therefore, go and disciple the nations. If you look up the word disciple in your dictionary, you will find that it is listed as a noun. That's why the English translators have to say, go and make disciples. In the Greek, it's a verb. The navigators some years ago changed the noun into a verb. We talk about discipling people. And we're in good ground when we do that, because that's what Jesus told the disciples to do. Go and disciple the nations. Now, again, what that will look like, we do not know. In fact, we sit around sometimes and scratch our heads and say, we really wonder what it looked like when a nation has been discipled. But whatever that looks like, however God defines that, this is our commission to go and to disciple the nations. Now, the basis for that command to go and to disciple the nations is the fact that all authority has been given unto Jesus. 
I memorized the Great Commission passage years ago when I was still using the King James Version. And in the King James, Jesus says, all power is given unto me. All of you today would understand the subtle difference between authority and power. The correct word is all authority has been given unto me. So what is Jesus saying when he says all authority has been given unto me, therefore go and disciple the nations? What he is basically saying is go and bring the nations under my authority. Jesus is to be the king of the earth. Jesus is to rule over the nations. Now, again, what this will look like, we do not know, but we have the words of prophecy. And by the way, lest you think this is going to occur somewhere out in a millennial kingdom, remember that Jesus said, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, this age. Jesus is talking about fulfilling the Great Commission today in the age in which we live. And the basis for Jesus sending his disciples and the basis for sending us is the fact that he has all authority. And he wants us to go and to bring people under his authority. And so we have these two streams brought together in the Great Commission. The nations need to be blessed. People need to be rescued from the wrath of God and from the futility of their own lives. And Jesus needs to be established as Lord in the lives of people. And both of these are brought together in the gospel. As the gospel goes out, as the gospel expands, people are blessed. People do come to Christ. People are saved from the wrath of God and the futility of their own lives. And people, at least in principle, are brought under the lordship of Christ. And then it is our responsibility to help them, to disciple them, to bring them more and more under the authority. That's the Great Commission. Now, how are we going to carry this out. It begins with prayer. There are a lot of things that we can do. We can talk, we can go, we can raise up others and send them, which is what Mark and his team are seeking to do here at KU. We can give to the support of those who've gone. But one thing that all of us can do is to pray and to pray for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. You see, that's what these ministers in 1784 ask the the people of their churches to do, to pray for the expansion of the gospel to the the, uh, uttermost parts of the habitable earth. And this is what you and I should be doing. When we know that God is going to bring something to pass, and and let me just say this, God is not hostage to our prayers. God is sovereign. God gave a promise to Abraham, and God will fulfill that promise in his own way, in his own time. And God made a prophecy through David, and God will fulfill that prophecy. He is not hostage to our prayers. But at the same time, God wants to involve us in the fulfillment of that, in that, in that involvement begins with prayer. Let me give you an example here from, from the life of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9. Most of you are familiar with the story of Daniel. Daniel was one of the uh, people uh, from 
the royal family, of the royal extended family of the Jews that were taken captive to the, to the nation of Babylon. And uh, you remember how that Daniel was selected to, uh, to study and to be part of the king's court. And to, he rose to a high position uh, in the Babylonian Empire. But God had made a promise or prophecy through the prophet Isaiah that after 70 years of captivity were completed, that he would bring back, he would restore the people to their own nation. You find this in in, uh, Jeremiah 29. That's where that well-known verse, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. That promise in its original context was in connection with this promise that after 70 years of captivity, God would restore the people. And Daniel read this. And so in Daniel chapter 9, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel reads the prophecy of Jeremiah. And he comes to what we now call Jeremiah 29, and he reads this prophecy, this promise that God will restore the people. And he looks at his calendar, and he realizes that 70 years has just about expired. And so what is his reaction His reaction is not, well, God, finally. You know, this ordeal is almost over. Thank you, Lord. Is it going to be next year or year after next? When do we start packing our bags for the return? No, this was not Daniel's response. But notice in verse 3, he says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy and fasting and sackcloth for ashes, And the remainder of the chapter recounts what Daniel is praying. And the bottom line is, Daniel is praying, God, fulfill your promise. Now, remember, God had given a promise. God cannot lie. So why does Daniel need to pray? Because this is the way that God has ordained. He has ordained to involve us. In, in fulfilling his promises by prayer. Because as we pray and as we call upon him to fulfill his promises, then as his promises are fulfilled, he is glorified. Because we've become acutely conscious of the fact that he is at work. And so when Daniel realizes that the prophecy of the 70 years of exile are almost finished, he turns to the Lord and he begins to pray. And I like the word he pleads for mercy. He asked God to do what God has promised to do. And this is what you and I should do. This is as we look at promises such as Psalm 22, verse 18, in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Then we should plead this promise before God and say, oh, God, you promised this to Abraham. And I know that you will fulfill it, but I'm coming because you promised. And I ask you to fulfill your promise. That every nation, that those hundreds of nations in what we call the the political country of India would be blessed 
through the successful penetration of the gospel into the culture of each of those nations. Dear friends, I don't think we're talking about a token few. As I say, I cannot quantify what it means for a nation to be blessed. But I'm reasonably confident that it means more than just a token few. That it means more than just perhaps children who die in infancy. But that it means a significant penetration of the gospel into every nation. What does it mean that Christ will reign, that all the families of the, of the world will bow down before him? It means that there are going to be millions of people who are going to acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ, not only in their minds and with their tongues, but in the way they live out their lives. People are going to be discipled. And so, this morning, as we consider the expansion of the gospel, I want us to realize that whatever else we may be involved in, and, and in, in talking about the expansion of the gospel to the nations, I don't want to just leapfrog over our responsibility within our own neighborhoods. But the fact is, that's where most of us stop in our thinking of evangelism. Or maybe we're content to send missionaries. But all of us can be involved in the fulfillment of the Great Commission through pleading with God to fulfill his promise to Abraham and through pleading with God to fulfill his prophecy that he gave to David that all the families of the earth would bow down before him. Now as we pray, I'd like to give you some practical Excuse me, some practical suggestions about prayer. And I want to talk about four areas of prayer. I used to say four levels of prayer, but I, I think that that gives the connotation that one level is more important than the other levels. And this is not what I'm saying, but four areas of prayer. And in order for us to consider these four areas of prayer, I would like to use military here and they're very much involved in troop welfare. But the four terms, the four areas of concern are the strategic, the tactical, the logistical, and the troop welfare. Now let me explain what these terms are. Strategic has to do with the ultimate objective of a military enterprise, whether it's army or navy. What is the strategic objective? And the strategic objective in any military enterprise, is to defeat the enemy. When Allied troops landed on the beaches of Normandy on June the 6th, 1944, their objective was not to occupy real estate, not to occupy France and Belgium and Holland and so forth. Their objective, their strategic objective, was the unconditional surrender of the Nazi army. That was the objective. Nothing less would do. Everything had to serve that strategic objective. Tactical refers to the individual engagements. For example, the invasion, the uh, yes, the invasion of, of uh, Europe on the Normandy beachheads was a tactical engagement. Each battle is fought as a tactical engagement. Logistical refers to all of the supplies, all of the um, ammunition, the food, 
the vehicles, the tanks, everything that the troops require in order to fight those engagements. Troop welfare, I think, is pretty obvious. It has to do with the physical and moral and spiritual welfare of the troops. That includes the the medical corps and the chaplain's corps and perhaps others. Bob Hope going over. And, you know, he used to do his thing during World War II and these kinds of things. All of these are important. Obviously, if there's no strategic objective, then why are we there? In fact, um, I may get in trouble getting in it over my head by being acting like a military analyst. But I would say that the reason we made such a mess in Vietnam is because we did not know what the strategic objective was. So we need to keep in mind the strategic objective. That's why the the troops are there, or the naval units are there. It's toward the fulfillment of that ultimate strategic objective. In a university setting, we might say that the strategic objective is the granting of the degree assuming that when the person gets the degree, they have the education that has earned that degree. I mean, the real objective is to provide the education, is it not? That's why the university exists. We can talk about the research and all these other things, but ultimately it comes down to the strategic objective of the university is to educate and to train young people. The tactical engagements would be all the educational activities that go on, the classes, these kinds of things. The logistics, well, you just drive down the street over here and you see all the logistics, the high-rise residence halls and the classroom buildings and the dining halls and uh, the computers and every material thing that goes into keeping KU going would be part of the logistics. And then... Each university has its own approach to student welfare, morale, and and these kinds of things. Now let's apply this to the church. What is the strategic objective? Well, we have it very clearly. It's to disciple the nations. That's what we're all about. We are involved in various tactical engagements. This conference... This weekend is, you might say, it's a tactical engagement. We want to grow as disciples ourselves. And part of being a disciple is to have on our hearts what's on God's heart for the world. The logistics, this building, the cookies, the coffee, and these kinds of things. All of these things are necessary. I mean, you can see that you cannot eliminate any one of these four aspects and accomplish the job. And then, of course, the morale has to do with the morale of those of us who are believers. Now, let me ask you this question. As you examine your prayer life... As you take these four aspects, strategic, tactical, logistical, and welfare, which of these four occupies the majority of your prayer energy?
that if most of us were honest, we would say that the majority of our prayer energy goes to our welfare, our health, our jobs, our exams, getting to Kansas City safely on the airplane, which we almost didn't do on Friday, these kinds of things. Now, again, these things are important. If I'm sick, I appreciate people praying for me. But I don't want your prayer to stop at that point. The question I would like to ask is this. Are you praying for the fulfillment of the Great Commission? Now, I'm not asking, are you praying for missionaries? But are you praying for the fulfillment of the Great Commission? Are you saying, Lord, you promised to Abraham that in his seed, that is in Jesus, my Savior, all the nations will be blessed. Lord, would you in your time and in your way, would you fulfill this promise? Now, we know that God is going to fulfill his promise. As I said earlier, God is not hostage to our lack of prayer. But God has commanded us to pray. And that's why those ministers 220 years ago sent out that urgent prayer request to their churches to pray for the spread of the gospel to the uttermost parts of the habitable globe. Because they wanted to be involved in doing what was on God's heart for the world. And so this morning, as we consider the expansion of the gospel, Don't stop praying for those of your friends and fellow church members that are in the hospital. I'm not asking you to do that. When your child is going through final exam week here at KU, don't stop praying for your child as they go through. I'm not asking you to do that. But what I am asking you to do is to pray for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. To plead the promises and the prophecies of God. Now, I have a very practical aid in doing this, and I'll show it to you. This is just one of many things. But I personally believe that it helps a person if you have, can visualize the world. And so here, you can't see this, those of you in the back, but this is a map of the world. You could have an atlas. You can get a paperback atlas at the campus bookstore. You can have a globe. Uh, Since I travel a lot, I carry this thing around with me. This is just a small map of the world. And as I pray for different parts of the world, and I, I like to pray for specific parts of the world. On Monday, I pray for the English speaking parts of the world, Great Britain and Canada and the United States and uh, New Zealand and Australia, and I realize Malawi and some of these other countries, English is the second language, but I'm talking about the primary countries. I I just lump all of those together because historically, these five, five countries have been the missionary sending countries for the last 200 years. That's rapidly changing. But for the last 200 years, 
They've been the primary missionary sending countries. And so I pray for our five primary English-speaking countries that God would continue to use us to be an engine, so to speak, of the fulfillment of the Great Commission. On Tuesday, I pray for all of Latin America. And I pray in what I call a strategic level. What, what are the most strategic prayer requests? What is God wanting to do in, in Latin America? On Wednesday for Europe. On Thursday for Africa and the Muslim world. And on Friday for all of the rest of Asia. Now, that's just how I go about it. I'm not suggesting that you take the, that uh, particular approach. But I'm just saying this is the way I approach it. But in each of those days, as I consider not only the primary needs, for example, when I pray for Africa, I pray for just rulers. Because I know that some in the history, in the most recent 50-year history of Africa, that there have arisen so many rulers in those countries who did nothing but enrich themselves at the expense of the general population. So I pray for justice, just and ethical rulers. But beyond that, I say, Lord, would you bless the nation of Malawi? I pray about the AIDS epidemic because that's a strategic need. But beyond that, Lord, would you bless Africa? Would all the nations of Africa turn and worship you? I pray for what the missionaries today are calling the 1040 world, which has to do with the latitude longitude. I can never keep those two straight. And I was a navigator in the Navy. But when I left the Navy, I, I forgot all of that stuff. <coughs> um, but um, anyway, the, you know, 10 degrees north of the equator to 40 degrees north of the equator. And that includes northern Africa, the Middle East and southern Asia. And that gets most of the world that has yet received a significant penetration of the gospel. Now, God intends to do something about that. I am not going to say, I will not say God wants to do something. God will do something. God is sovereign. There's no question about that. God's promise to Abraham will be fulfilled. God's prophecy through David will be fulfilled. There's absolutely no question about that. Just as there was no question that at the end of the 70 years that God would lay it upon the heart of Cyrus to issue the decree sending the Jews back to Jerusalem. God moved upon the heart of Cyrus. Cyrus was a heathen king. But Daniel prayed that God would fulfill that which God had already sovereignly determined to bring to pass. And you and I have the privilege of being involved with God by praying what he has sovereignly determined to bring to pass. And Jesus did give us this commission. He did give us this command. Go and disciple the nations. And all that's involved in that, the going and the sending and the supporting, but underlying all of the going and the sending and the supporting is prayer. Let me ask you again, are you praying for the fulfillment of the Great Commission? Let's pray.
Our Father, we would have to confess today that oftentimes we do not really take seriously your Great Commission. We look at it, we admire it, we're grateful for those who go. But meanwhile, we continue to mind our own business, to pray about our own needs, and forget your promise. Father, help us to repent this morning, to truly repent, and to begin to plead with you for the fulfillment of your promises and your prophecies, that all the ends of the earth might hear, and all the families of the nations will turn and bow down before you, and that Jesus will indeed be acknowledged as Lord in a significant way in every nation and tribe and people and tongue. And we ask this in his name. Amen.